All right, welcome back to The Poet Delayed. This is Scott, uh, the host, and I am here with Brad Singletary. I'm actually sitting in his office here in Henderson, Nevada. I, I was here back in June and uh, recorded a podcast with his podcast, The Alpha Corm. Mm-hmm. And so I told him that he owes me an episode. That's right. <laughs> and so here we are. Um, but let's let's uh, introduce you, Brad. I, I know you're from Florida. You do you used to do crabbing and stuff back in Florida with your family. Yeah, that's right. Grew up in the sticks, up in the country part of North Florida. People hear Florida and they think of like West Palm Beach or Miami. Yeah. No, no, no. I'm from to picture like rural Georgia. That's the kind of Florida that I'm from. So, do people play banjos where you're from? <laughs> There's all manner of. <laughs> weirdness i guess uh that's one reason i don't live there i, I don't know that's that's my home but uh um yeah and different um, life out there looking at your wall you got a diploma from weber state which is that's up right. my way and then university of utah that's right and uh how long have you been down here so i've been in vegas since 2005 so what is that 18 years or something like that dang yeah yeah 18 years and uh what i can't Let's see. Master of Social Work. I'm looking at the University of Utah. Is that right? Yep. And so right now, what are you doing for work? For So I'm a therapist in private practice. I um, do therapy and coaching with men and marriages um, for the most part. Work with some teens, but mostly adults. Um, I enjoy working with men and uh, their relationships. So sometimes I end up working with their wife or working with them together as a couple, but all right. And how, how long have you been doing that? I've been in this field since 1998. Um, I've been doing proper, you know, therapy like this since about 2002, maybe, or something like that. So 20 years plus. And, and in addition to your therapy practice, I know you also have uh, um, uh, something called Alpha Corm. Yeah. So the Alpha Quorum is just a little, it's just a little side project, I guess a passion project. The idea is that men are far too isolated and men need, you know, small groups in their life, small groups of men, hopefully, you know, some in their neighborhood that they can borrow a shovel from or whatever, you know, practical things they may need, but also maybe a a brain trust. That was your mm-hmm. friend Jimmy's word about, you know, a group of men who could just be, um, you know, give you feedback, you, you meet on a regular basis, they talk to you about things. And so the Alpha Quorum is a, it's a worldwide organization. I think our Facebook group has about 1600 men from all over oh, the wow. world. And some of them have been my clients, but not that many and percentage wise. And so these are just guys who want to level up as men and uh, they may come on there and share a struggle that they're having or something there. So, so it's still becoming whatever it's going to be. But, um, so far it's a podcast. We have about a hundred episodes called the alpha quorum show and then, uh, the Facebook group and a discord server. And, and then I do five men's groups here locally. So I have five different men's groups that come in and I work with them every other week for two hours. Are they, uh, those groups, are they part of the alpha quorum or is that in addition to? Yeah. I mean, so those are my therapy clients. Some of those maybe they're being, you know, the insurance is paying for their visit with me, but I, I just always kind of send this as, as like, Hey, this other thing is just a resource. There's other men here. Mm-hmm. You know, you can share your struggles in a couple different ways there and, you know, learn from other men who are talking about their lives too. So, you know, I'm up, up, up north, I, I'm in a men's group. There's, I think, 12 of us, mm-hmm. and we meet uh, once a week. And that has been one of the best experiences for me. Like like you said, I, like before we started this, we were talking about how, um, you know, men have a hard time being vulnerable, mm-hmm. to, to summarize what we're saying. And when I meet with these men, we got, we got it's, it's great, there's 12 men, led by two fearless female leaders. Wow. <laughs> yes. They're pretty, they're pretty amazing. Um, but, you know, we are learning to, to talk about our emotions together. We're learning to be vulnerable and share the difficulties we're having in our lives in a safe place. And we're learning to do that. You know, a, a lot of, you know, I know a number of us, probably all of us in the group that I go to, um, our experiences have been that we were not in relationships, whether it be a marriage or a family or 
a, a workplace, we were not in relationships in which we were safe to share our emotions. Mm-hmm. You know, we would be shamed for it or, and it's not just us. I mean, and, and, when, and we're also learning, you know, we're also on the other side as well, learning to not shame, mm-hmm. learning to hear other people share their vulnerabilities with us and to be gentle with them and patient and, and understand that um, it's okay. And, and really this, this mask that we all wear of um, having it together, none of us really has it together. You know, we are all messy and clumsy and to understand that and to have a safe place to talk about that and to learn to be patient and learn to love people in all of their messiness. That's really what's coming through this, this men's group of mine. It sounds like that's kind of the same work that you're doing down here. Yeah, that's great. 12 guys for once a week. Yeah. So does this run long? Is this an hour? Does it have a time? Two hours. Two hours every week. That's nice. I like that. We go for 12 weeks. Then we take a break for a couple months. And then that you said is led by two females. Is that intentional or is that just who happens to be running this one? Yeah, I mean, is this like intentional to be a men's group, but run by, I mean. Well, I, it's, that's not uh, uh, necessarily a characteristic of it. It just happens to be how it is. It's so um, it's part of the therapy clinic that I attend mm-hmm. and just the two therapists who are over the men's group happen to be two women. Okay. It used to be a woman and a man and the man went off and opened his oh, own. Oh, I got you. Okay. Yeah. Just so, that's who's doing that, but yeah. that works out. That's a, it gotta be interesting for, to have a, you know, that perspective. It's uh, in fact, I, I think it's probably the better way to do it Oh wow, yeah, because, um, you know, it's, they bring a dynamic, um, that you just don't get. I mean, it's great with, with the guys. It's good because, you know, we, we can, we're very, you know, we, we see things similarly mm-hmm. pretty much, but then to have these women come in and, uh, they're both therapists, very good therapists and to have them come in and kind of help us and direct us and share thoughts. And, you know, they, they don't, they just, they're part of the group. So mm-hmm. it's great. I really enjoy it. I think it's great to, uh, I call them our fearless female leaders. <laughs> I'm glad so. that you're doing that, man. That's, yeah, that's good. so valuable. I just found when I started doing men's groups here, some of my colleagues said, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Men aren't going to talk. They're definitely not going to talk to each other. Mm. And what I found is these guys get in these groups and unless they move out of town or there's a work shift change or something, they're here, man, two and three years. They're, uh, they're kind of sticking with this and they love it. They become friends, a lot of them. And I encourage for them to get together outside of the group. Even, you know, here's a phone list. Here's, yeah, we have this discord server so they can post things anonymously to other guys, but, uh, the, the need to share and open up, man, that's big. And they do want to do that. Men do want to talk. If you have, if you, if you make them feel okay about it. Yeah. Um, and the guys in my group, we are, we are there for each other, even in our off seasons when we're not doing it. I mean, I will call them there. You know, if I'm struggling, I will call them. They will call me. We'll check in on each other and we will be there just to listen. You just, you know, you just need someone to listen. I'll listen. You need some, you need to bounce some ideas off of somebody. Give me a call. Let's, let's bounce some ideas. Let's see what we can figure out here. It's just what, you need it. So you can't, so, so you're not alone. So you're not keeping it all bottled up inside your get outside the echo chamber of your head. So it's been good. I tell people and, and men and, but just adults too, that your most miserable time in life is when you were the most isolated. I really mm-hmm. believe that. I oh totally. You know, when I've made the stupidest decisions ever, <laughs> that's when I wasn't talking to dudes and I yeah. wasn't sharing like, Hey, this is going on in my life. And, and then they say, well, what do you think you'll do? You know? And just even a buddy yeah. at, at a, at an event I, when I didn't have that, um, that's when I was terrible. And so that's why I really love the group idea to get some guys together that you can tell on yourself to. Yeah. And uh, you know, you might need to get smacked around with some truth some yeah, feedback, but it's smacked around with encourage. It's, it's like, you know, cause we we're very accountable to each other, you know, mm-hmm. and it's very accepting and very loving. It's like you go into this group and it's a place where you can share whatever you want to share and people step up, the guys step up and like, Hey man, I get it. I get it. That's tough. And, and there's truth. 
there's truth certainly, but it's not um, shaming truth. Right. It's not bully. It's not bully mm, truth mm. bombs. It's um, what is it? It's not brutal honesty. What? what how do? Um, vigorous honesty. I think mm. you know, vigorously honest, not mm. brutal. It's mm. not brutal. It's vigorous. Huh. But it's also loving and encouraging. Mm -hmm. You know, which is should, which is how it should be. You know, we're all in this together we're all struggling and yeah so there's no no reason to beat someone else down it's it's not a well it's not like a pie chart where there's only a little bit of happiness to go around yeah you know so well sounds like uh, that's pretty great so what's the website for alpha quorum or, or if somebody wanted to see, look more into that what would they do so on like itunes and the uh, spotify all the all the podcast apps it's the alpha quorum show that's q u o r u m alpha quorum show um, our website is alphacorum.com and then social media, the same thing. Our Facebook group, gosh, I can't tell you how to get to that, but <laughs> if you just type in a Facebook search, um, alpha quorum, you'll see it. There's a black logo. There's a black, like the pro profile pictures, a black, a black logo. Yeah. And then, um, you can just ask to be involved in the group. <clears throat> I think the questions are, are you a dude <laughs> and are you trying to be better? <laughs> Something along those lines. And if you say yes, you're in. Okay. Well, one reason that prompted my coming down here, well, I'm down here in your neck of the woods for a soccer tournament for my girl. Um, so I, and I thought, you know what, this is time to make good on that podcast episode. That's right. <laughs> and then I just happened to see a few days ago, I happened to see a, a post of yours. Uh, I think it was on Instagram where you uh, commemorated two years of sobriety. That's right. Tuesday, two years sober. I had a long period of sobriety, mm -hmm. but then COVID got me and I'm just two years now out of that. Sober from what? Alcohol. Congratulations, man. Yeah, man. That's a, that's the devil's drink for real. Mm -hmm. Well, that got me thinking <clears throat> because I mean, addiction is a big problem, big problem in the world really. And there's, I mean, it seems to take a lot addiction, the, the addiction I don't even know what to call it. Just addiction consumes a lot of resources, emotional, financial, social. I mean, whatever addiction is an issue. Yeah. It's like a third of everything going on in the world is some compulsive indulgence. Mm. <laughs> well, I got to think about that. And then it, it made me think of a poem that I, I, I wrote. Um, let me find it here. Actually, where is it? It's a poem that I wrote about actually a black hole. Um, and, but as I thought about your post and your success and about addiction, for some reason, this poem came into my mind and I thought, you know, this is, this poem can be, you know, I, I can relate it to, to, uh, addiction. So I'm going to go ahead and read that here. So it's called, they were beacons it says, you got to get the proper length for my eyes getting old <laughs> see that gray in the beard <laughs> yeah that's right got to cut it back all right so it says uh they are out there you know them by their void their masks of nothingness but they are something and voracious consuming in large amounts everything completely their prey rage in vain then submit in silence no distress signals sent even sound is consumed and light in their dark bellies. But they were beacons once and they shined. So as I mentioned, this is about black holes, literally, mm -hmm. but I, I just thought how often addiction, when it gets a hold of somebody and, and I, I want to talk today about all kinds of addiction, because I think we, you know, normally when we think of addiction, we think of, like for me, at least alcohol, drugs, sex, porn, um, video games, gambling, yeah. gambling. Yeah. We're in Vegas gambling, <laughs> but addictions are, it's, it's far broader than that. Yeah. And so I want to talk about that. But when I read this poem, I just thought how many people has addiction turned into a black hole? Mm. They shined, they used to shine. They were beacons and then something grabbed them, you know, and and it, and, and it changed them to where they were now consuming their own lives, mm. their own light. And that in, in metaphorically speaking, literally also consumes the light of people around, around them, mm -hmm. family members who are the sadness and the 
pain and the fear because their loved one is, is, you know, struggling with addiction. So the, the, the difference though between a black hole and somebody with struggling with addiction is somebody struggling with addiction. There's a way out. And once a black hole, I guess, you know, always a black hole, maybe. See. Yeah. I'm proof of that, man. I've, you know, I've been up and down with that since um, probably middle school. I probably struggled with that since middle school, but um, I'm proof that it can t- turn around. It can change. Um, so as a therapist, do you work with clients who struggle with addiction? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Probably. I don't know. I'd say a third probably have some, you know, compulsive behavior of some sort. Now you're saying compulsive behavior. Um, cause I think one thing, cause I, 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 I think addiction would be a compulsive behavior. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder though about, you know, how do we define, you know, what an addiction is? Because I, I think it's far broader. It's a bigger issue. Maybe I guess one way I'd say it is I, it seems to me like there are things that, that would be considered addictions that aren't necessarily considered negative in nature. Um, and the reason I say that, let me, we talked a little bit about Gabor Mate. Mm-hmm. He's a great, uh, for those. Brilliant. Yeah. 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 From, from uh, he's from Canada, but I think he was born in Eastern Europe during world war two. A great story, amazing story, but he talks about his addiction was buying classical music. Oh, wow. Yeah. He, he bought, he said that he bought one day, he spent $8,000 on classical music CDs. Wow. And even that he, he was a doctor, an MD, and he was supposed to deliver a baby and he missed the delivery because he was in the CD store. This was back, you know, when they used to, people would buy actual CDs Wow! and he missed it. And because he was out buying CDs. Now, I don't think people normally consider that an addiction, you know, mm-hmm. but, but here's, here's how he defines addiction. And I, and I think this is brilliant because it, a lot of, a lot more things kind of fall under this. He says, um, he, here's what his definition of, de- of uh, addiction, any behavior that a person finds relief and therefore craves in the short term, but suffers negative consequences in the long term and doesn't give it up despite the negative consequences. Mm. So any behavior that, and he says, he specifically says, I'm not taught. I didn't mention drugs. I didn't mention alcohol. It's just any behavior. So, I mean, if we take that, um, could be CrossFit, could be CrossFit. Absolutely. I'm sober from CrossFit, man. <laughs> <laughs> Clean and sober. <laughs> it could be CrossFit. It could be work. You yeah. know, I mean, we look at yeah. some, like, I remember hearing like Tom Cruise gave an interview where he talks about his work schedule and like, mm-hmm. he's like up at four, works seven days a week, up at 4am and just wow. crazy. And, and, and maybe that works for him, you know, maybe, but I can see work being an addiction where, you know, your family's missing you, your family's missing out on you, or you, you are, your body's wearing down, your mind's wearing down, but you're yeah. doing that. Mm-hmm. And so the other thing, and this guy is just a, a wealth of, uh, wealth of information, uh, just brilliant. He also said this, addiction is not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a moral failure. It's not an ethical lapse. It's not a weakness of character. It's not a failure of, failure of will which is how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical, uh, which is the medical tendency, how the medical tendency is to see it. But what it actually is, is it's a response to human suffering. Addiction is an attempt to escape suffering temporarily. Mm. Interesting. Those different models of understanding, like what this is about, like in AA, they, they're really kind of quoting the medical model, which is, you know, this is a disease, right? This is a disease. And I think, I I think about like, uh, conflicting messages, like in the Bible, you know, so there's a letter to this group and a letter to this group and a letter to this group, and they're all doing different things, but there's a different message because they're separate people. So the people who, or, you know, hate themselves and shame on themselves or whatever, when they hear it's a disease that can be helpful for them. <laughs> I don't like the idea that it's a disease because it seems that that would make it, uh, I, I, I don't know. I probably use that terminology a lot before, but, uh, and then the uh, choice model. 
uh-huh. for someone who thinks that they can't have a choice, maybe that would be helpful to them. So I can see where, why we tried to, you know, create those foundations or define some reason why it exists the way it does. But um, I like what he says. Have you ever heard about Rat Park? <clears throat> Rat Park. Mm-hmm. So there's this uh, Canadian, not, not Gabor Monte, another one, Canadian, uh, I think it was a psychologist, uh, Bruce Alexander, I think his name was. Mm-hmm. But so they, you know, when uh, I guess back in the day, they studied rats and they would uh, find, and, and that's how, and that was how they determined that initially that, you know, you get addicted to heroin, there's a switch that turns on your brain and now mm-hmm. you're addicted to heroin. You're an addict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And once an addict, always an addict. Yeah. And he challenged that because what, I guess that, that when they did those studies, they would put a rat, a single rat in a box and they would give like one like thing of water and then one water with morphine in it or something like that. Mm-hmm. And the single rat in this box just hit that morphine drip all Compulsively, the time. Yeah. Yeah. And would not, you know, to the exclusion of the water. And so they thought, okay, he's addicted now, you know, and this, this, uh, Dr. Alexander thought, well, what if the rat wasn't in a box by itself? So he created a rat park. I have heard of this. Yes. And introduced a bunch of other rats in with him, with this, you know, these rats and made like everything a rat would want. And they gave a morphine drip and water and they hit that water. And he said, he, I think he said that they would every now and then go over to the morphine drip and get a little bit kind of recreationally. Right. You know, <laughs> but they, they were off it. They, it's not, they were not dependent upon it. And so his conclusion was, you know, kind of like Gabor Mate's, the, the, this drug is being used to ease the pain, like to, to the, whatever this rat is alone. It's a social rats are social animals. They make that point. And here's this rat. And now it's uh, got other friends. It's got other things to, uh, it's like, I think it was Gabor Mate who said that uh, the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. It's connection. Totally true. It's connection. I mean, think about times when you feel connected to somebody, like when you feel that love, I mean, it's almost, I mean, that's, that's sufficient. Yeah. The connection. So fulfilling. Yeah. The, I, I think that is the thing that drives addiction the most is loneliness. And it doesn't have to be that you're actually isolated or you're actually, you know, separated necessarily from people. You could be around tons of people yeah. and still have the feeling of isolation or the feeling of like disconnection. And um, that is, that's the next step. Let's go look for some indulgence. Let's go stimulate. Let me go stimulate my body. Usually, even if it's a process addiction like gambling, let me stimulate my body with chemicals. I sort of self-medicate. And what I'm medicating is loneliness and disconnection, feeling of isolation. Yeah. And so he, Gabor Mate asked the question. He says, um, the real question is not why do you have this addiction, but why do you have the pain that's leading to it? So find the, you know, what is the pain that you're trying to numb? You know, um, he talks about trauma. Gabor Mate's um, thought is that all addiction stems from childhood trauma. And that we have this pain that we never were able to discuss and talk about. And so we get hurt and injured from it. And, we don't know what it is. And so what do we do? We try to kill the pain. Yeah. Numb it or numb it or, or come alive if we feel numb. Yeah. So you feel numb and now you need something yeah. to, to feel anything. And yeah. Good. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> Another interesting thing about, thing about that uh, rat park is what they, what they also did is they took a bunch of rats in single boxes and they, and they put them in there. And so they're all hitting that morphine drip, a bunch of them. And then after they were on there a good amount of time, like days, weeks or something, they introduced them all into Rat Park and they all normalized and gave up the morphine drip. Wow. Isn't that cool? That's that's way cooler than even the first version of yeah. that, that, that returning to that 
is that that's the healing part that, that, you know, coming back to some connection can take away. Yeah. You know, the addiction is just an attempt to cope. It's a misguided attempt to, to survive, to feel good. So what do you, was there anything in particular or is there anything in particular that you found helpful in your journey through this? So definitely connection. I, if, you know, concealment, hiding is one of the things that feeds our sense of isolation. So I kind of do this little cycle and it involves the beginning is the feeling of isolation. Mm -hmm. Then you indulge and then you feel shame and self-hatred, but then you conceal. So you're hiding, you're avoiding, you're staying away from people. You're not talking, you're lying, you're covering your tracks, you're doing all this concealment. But that is where you put yourself, you invalidate yourself through that and put yourself back into a you know, you continue the cycle back to feeling isolated. So for me, it was to tell the truth. And I remember I had been going to AA for several months and I slipped and then, you know, and then I slipped and I was like, well, I'm not going to restart my time. I'm not going to restart my days or whatever. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to tell them. And, and I felt good about it. And I had one slip and I just said, yep, still sober. Mm. And then I noticed that I fell back into like lying. So mm -hmm. for me, it was having accountability. I eventually said, Hey, I've been lying. I slipped and you know, that kind of lapsed a little bit there um, and restarted my time. And, and so I was in the process of doing the work and with the right people and at the right places, but I still was lying. And for me, having people, you know, support me, who had been through that before they knew I probably was lying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people, even in the, you know, even in the uh, disclosure process, they're only telling 80%. And so uh, anyway, um, you said, what, what's been most helpful? Yes. Group stuff, mm -hmm. being together with other people and talking specifically about this, not just fun night at the bingo hall or whatever, right. but being with other people specifically to say, Here's where I am. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what I need. Here's what I can't figure out. And um, in AA, there's not a lot of crosstalks. So you don't hear a lot yeah. back, but you still pick up things. But so for me, it was get together with people that are trying to do, trying to get where you want to be, or they already are there um, on a regular basis and tell the truth. Why do you think lying is such a part of addiction? Well, it's shame. It's a fear of loss of connection. I think that was Brene Brown's definition of that fear of loss of connection. So I'm afraid that if you know that I used again, I slipped again, you right. know, my, my mom, my parents are late seventies. And my mom said, if I ever caught your, this wasn't that long ago. <laughs> if I ever caught your dad looking at porn, I would divorce him. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on a minute now. That's, <laughs> he's probably not done that or never going to do that. I don't know. I don't think so. But anyway, she's saying if you ever slip, that's a done deal. And so people being afraid of that kind of separation or loss or whatever, I don't want to upset you. I don't mm -hmm. want to lose favor in your eyes. So I'm going to just cover my, you know, cover my tracks, hide the bottles, you know, conceal it in whatever way. Cause I don't want to lose. That's the torture, man. Yeah. Isolation is what they do to bad prisoners. You're in prison, you're being punished. You're already, <laughs> you know, it's as bad as it can get. You're behind bars for whatever length of time. And if you do bad there, the real torture, the real punishment that really they hope will get you now is isolation. I, I heard, heard this guy, it was a Ted talk. And he's talking about addiction and he talked about, uh, um, actually he talked about the, that's where I first heard about rat, rat park was in his Ted talk, but he talked about, um, going to a, in Arizona, there was a woman's chain gang for drug. Um, they were convicted for drug use, drug possession, and they all had to wear t-shirts that said something like I was convicted of drugs or something, you know, a drug use. So they were made to wear these t-shirts on a chain gang doing hard labor. And that's supposed to, um, break them free of drugs. Hmm. I mean, how more shaming, how more shaming can you get? 
Yeah, so many things that are intended to make a difference really have the opposite effect. The, those kind of things. Yeah. You know, we're talking about the definition of um, addiction. I, I love Gabor Mate's definition of it because there's so many things that it takes in, um, you know, things that we don't think about necessarily uh, about, about addiction, but it also, because, so I've struggled with pornography and I used to think, why is it even an issue? You know, you know, and a big reason I thought, you know, like I grew up in the Mormon church and there's a, I mean, come down hard on it, yeah. you know, hard on it. And so I just thought, man, if like people out in the world found out, cause it, I wouldn't say that I was, um, I mean, it wasn't, uh, I wasn't chasing every day, every week even. And so I would think, God, come on, you know, if, if like people who weren't in the Mormon church found out what people were upset about with my usage, they would like, I'm sorry, what's the problem? You know, right. <laughs> but, but under Gabor Mate's definition, it can't be anything other than an addiction because what he said again is any behavior that a person finds relief and therefore craves in the short term, but suffers negative consequences in the long term and doesn't give it up despite the negative consequences. Well, yeah. there are negative consequences in my marriage yeah. because it hurt my wife. Sure. It bothered her, yeah. whether it should have or not. I'm not judging that, but what it did do was it caused negative consequences. It, it damaged the, the connection between yes. you. And despite that, I mean, I, I put a lot of effort into stopping, mm -hmm. but there, uh, but I didn't, I mean, there were, uh, you know, I'd go through times of great success, but then relapse or uh, act out, however you want to say it. And so by that definition, yeah, I was using it for relief from the stress and pain, which I didn't know what it was. I thought it was, and frankly, I thought it was a moral failure. I thought I just wasn't good enough. I just thought I wasn't putting in enough energy being, I wasn't trying hard enough. And, and so I would try harder, but I would not think I would try to say, well, it's not an addiction, but no, it was an addiction. It's, I mean, I guess it always, you know, it's, I'm always prone to it. And, and so I, that's why I like his, his definition, because what it does is it, takes this behavior and knowing that definition, I can look in my life and think, okay, what else am I doing that with? You know, mm. and maybe, you know, some things are more like an addiction to heroin is worse than an addiction to work probably, right. you know? Yeah. And so, um, but there are other behaviors in my life that I know that I can improve on. So I, I don't want to like, I, I do get the, I do sometimes get uh, get afraid that maybe I'm going to see everything that and, and get overwhelmed by everything I need to fix all at once, you know, rather than just taking a little bit of time. But but I, that's why I like his definitions because it helps me evaluate better the things you know that I can improve in my life. And I mean, under that definition, like we were saying earlier, I mean, excessive work. If you're working to avoid. That's um, me, dude. I mean, that's, I do that for sure. Yeah, I see posts on Instagram, 9, 9 p.m., going home for the night, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah, so I, his definition, so there's really three things. One is it brings you relief. Mm -hmm. In the short term. And temporarily. relief in the short term, and therefore you crave it. Mm -hmm. um, it brings negative consequences in the long term. Right. And in spite of your efforts to stop, you're not able to. Yeah. Despite those negative consequences, you don't stop. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting that the first part of that is that it, that it brings relief. And that's the, that's the grieving that a lot of people feel when they really try to look at face and addiction is this is a friend, man. You all think of the friend of that, like the trustworthy freaking friend who always made you feel a little relief. That's the first part of addiction. It feels relief. It is. In fact, he talks about, you know, you watched that video that I sent to you that, he, and I reference this video in multiple episodes because I think it's, it's such a, does such a beautiful job of talking about addiction and authenticity and attachment. Uh, and he talks about that when we're, when, when we're children, we have to attach to our, our adult caregivers. We have to, to survive because we can't do it on our own but we also have to connect to ourselves and attach to ourselves and be authentic. And when those two things come butt heads, one of them has to give. And when you're a kid, you can't say as a young child, that's it. Mom and dad, 
I need to be myself. So I'm going out. I'm leaving you now. You can't. You're, and so the child abandons who they are to maintain that attachment to the parent. And I think in most instances, I don't think the parent understands that that's what's happening. But that's what's happening. And then so they grow up without this um, love and, you know, without the attachment to themselves. And so when they, like his example was a heroin addict, when they first take heroin, it's like a warm hug that they've never had. You know, it's like, okay, I like this, you know. And um, But what you mentioned was very interesting. Like this is that addiction was their friend, you know? And the first comment under that video that we watched, I actually even wrote it down. He's this, this guy wrote, I don't, I should have written his name down. He said, Oh, where is it? Let me just describe yeah, what yeah. I'm looking at real quick. He's got his handwritten, his little notebook. Mm -hmm. So this is a dude who's doing work and he's journaling these little, you know, notes to himself or just things. And it's just cool to see that. Oh, you're talking about me. This old school, like composition book type of deal. And he's, He's got, I don't know. It's just the coolest thing ever to see a man with some handwritten notes to himself. And he's referring, he's flipping back and forth. It's Are just you, old school, man. It's just, it's a cool thing to see right there. You're it's, breaking it's the fourth like wall. Like an art form. Yeah. You're talking to the audience. Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. cool. All right. see, look at you. <laughs> Avant-garde podcasting. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. Yeah. I, I carry notebooks around with me just because I, I don't know. I, I like notebooks. I like physical books to read, but he, this guy, he wrote, this is the first comment under that Gabor Monte video. He's this guy said, my addiction is the most stable thing I've ever had in my life. Wow. Yeah. How reliable is nicotine, man? You know exactly what's going to happen. It's going to hit when it's going to hit. Yeah. And you need to get relief from that. You hit it yeah. and you got it. The problem is when there's negative outcomes from it, yeah. you know, and, and I guess the question is, you know, what's the risk to reward ratio, you know, you know, and mm -hmm. so I, I guess maybe that's, that's an analysis that you can make as well. But, you know, and so often with the addictions, like with drugs, the risk to reward is no bueno. I mean, it's yeah, just overwhelms alcohol. I mean, yeah. I've, I, I'm, I don't drink alcohol, haven't ever, or I've never done you know, any drugs. So I don't know what that's like. Um, but I know pornography was difficult. Yeah. It's very difficult, mm -hmm. you know, cause you know that, you know what, you know, the, the rush it's going to give, you know? And the other thing is like with pornography is almost a, it's not, not so much anymore. I don't think, but for a while there, there was a social stigma certainly mm -hmm. attached with it, you know, yeah, almost like you'd look I'd look around and think I'm the only one which <laughs> was never the case, never just me, you know, but that's how he felt. And, and it was, you're made to feel like it was a moral failure. You know, like I yeah. was, I was not putting in enough effort, was not trying you, hard. You enough. must be disconnected from God or whatever. Yeah. Like your intentions aren't right. And whatever. Pray, har pray harder, pray harder yeah. fast more, read your scriptures more. Um, I read something one time. It was like, the primary addiction is masturbation and all the others are just trying to mimic that. <laughs> that was Freud. Was it? it was okay, Freud. I know this was some old school stuff yeah, and it was, was an old book that was quoting an old, that, that sounds probably right. I mean, yeah, I don't, I think, I think he's probably been disproven on that. Uh -huh, I, don't <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I don't know, but maybe they were do people were doing that before they were doing, uh, you know, mixing up drugs and stuff. Yeah. You know, could be that. Yeah. Um, or in the, in a person's life that that's some of the first compulsive behaviors, masturbation, true, true. start throwing true. in porn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's probably, that's probably true. First yeah. compulsive behavior. Yeah. At least for teenage boys. Yeah. You know? So and some of those addictions are, I mean, nobody has a, a, a need for alcohol, let's say, or gambling, but like food and sex addictions are very difficult because you, it's a biological drive. You, yeah. you have to do it some. No other thing. You have to do some, you have to right. do, you have to have some sexual release and some, some food. And so those two things are very hard to rein in talking as is the fat guy here in the room talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, that's interesting because when you think about that, because alcohol is um, a drug that you introduce into your system, Yeah. but sex and food 
Like so you're, you are wired for those. You have, well, food for certain you have to have, or you'll die. Yeah. You know, sex, you won't die, but, um, but your body's producing the pressure f- yeah. to, for, to release it. Well, you're, you're biologically males driven for it. Yeah. You know, I mean, otherwise if there wasn't such a drive, men would be out hunting and never come home, <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. really that's, it's, yeah, for real. Yeah. They never come home, but it's. So I, I think about addiction and, and I, I know Gabor Mate is doing a lot of this and just trying to change the, the narrative of it, that it's not um, a moral failure. Like you were saying, like I said earlier, it's, he said, it's, it's not a choice. It's, uh, it's, it's not a choice that anybody makes. It's not a moral failure. It's not an ethical lapse. It's not a weakness of character. And to understand that, whether people are, I mean, I'm sure there are people who, there are people who will argue that, but for me, at least I, I know for me to understand that, you know, there's something going on here. Yeah. It's, it's not that I'm a bad person, that I'm a sinner and, and evil and, and I just can't get my shit together um, because I tried really hard. And then to understand that there was a pain, there was, like, like he said, you know, you know, the real question, not why the addiction, but why the pain, why the pain, why the pain? And then when you start asking that question and kind of delving into why the pain, why are you hurting? What are you trying to numb? What are you trying to, um, um, yeah, what pain are you trying to numb? Then you can start the real healing process. You mentioned that he talked about, you know, childhood trauma. So I, I heard at one point that, you know, research and numbers and statistics change all the time, but, and this may be 20 years ago when I heard this, but that 90% of women who abuse substances have sexual trauma. And, and I think, well, okay, that makes sense because one in three women, one in three females are sexually assaulted at some point in their lifetime. So it makes sense that, um, you know, if, if one third are dealing with that anyway, and some end up addicted, you can, you can see that's highly correlated, right? right, right. Um, if for men, the number is one in four. So sexual trauma is one of those things. There could be things like divorces, you know, you, some horrific accident. Uh, you know, I saw a man die when I was a little kid at a, this swimming hole near my, uh, where I grew up and, and, you know, those things are kind of traumatic. It could be, you fell out of a tree, you saw something gruesome, uh, you know, there's so many forms of that stuff. Emotional neglect, childhood emotional, emotional neglect, neglect. Yeah. I mean, kills. <clears throat> there's a, and Jimmy Durbin actually is the one that introduced me to the ACEs score, but it's, mm-hmm. it's like, uh, what is it? Adverse childhood experiences. It's a little test that they, the Kaiser Permanente, I think group in California created this thing to say, look at childhood. Uh, what do they call them? Adverse childhood experiences. And the higher your number, um, the the more you know health problems you're going to have, the more mental health issues you're going to have, the more substance abuse problems and whatever. And I think my number was like seven out of ten. I think it goes up to ten. So That's high. You know, it's, it's a lot of those things. You know, you went through a divorce. You had a single parent. You had, um, you know, you were ridiculed by a, by a parental figure or something. You know, I can't remember all the questions, but definitely trauma is linked and that's where we start to learn to hide. That's where we start to learn to feel disconnected because now I've got some shit in my story that people don't know about. I don't want to talk about, I don't even know what it is. You know, your six year old being physically, you know, being sexually assaulted. Um, It's crazy. Yeah, well, we don't, when we don't take those things into consideration when talking about addiction, that just makes the problem even worse. Because then, as we t- mentioned, then it becomes, just just add to that, not only do you have all that going on in your life, but also you're an alcoholic. But no, no, you're not, you're not, a, you're not and an alcoholic. You're an alcoholic because of that, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I think it's important you know, I, I think it's important that, but 
you know, when I think about this, I'm not thinking, okay, therefore you're excused. We're not excused. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that we had situations in our lives, which have created a situation, created an environment that led us into an addiction, whatever addiction that is, it's unfortunate. But the fact of the matter is that's where we are. And we can't just, I mean, you, I guess you could sit back and just say, okay, it's it. Here I am, you know? So, but, but I look at it and I think it's not, it's not an excuse. I mean, it's, we still, it's good to understand it, but we still have to work through it. You know, mm-hmm. like the work you're doing. I mean, it's, two years is awesome, but you didn't just sit back and say, my life sucks. Horrible. Whatever your traumas were horrible, horrible. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to drink myself to death, mm. you know, cause I, I'm sure there are people who do that and that's heartbreaking, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. It's people, you know, if you, if you, in AA, I don't know where this originates, but it's quoted often there that we're only as sick as our secrets. Mm. And if you think about the concealment and the isolation, they go hand in hand, the things you're not talking about, you don't, after a while, you've already told all your story. You've already told on yourself for all the things you've done in the past. Now what you've got to tell on what you have to self-disclose is this is what I'm feeling this week. This is what I'm experiencing. This is what I am struggling with. This is what I maybe have been dishonest about in the past. And so the whole, the idea of just opening like you do in your men's group, Mm -hmm. like this here. I mean, I've spent a couple hours with you in life. Mm -hmm. three hours total I've known you and I've gained all kinds of wisdom from you, man. That podcast that we did, that was one of our top downloads, man. That was, Mm. that was a, that was a great, that was a great message. It was about how you've learned to survive. And you're through that means through this media right now, whoever's listening, you're being influenced by a guy who's opening up and telling his, you know, some of his hurt and what he's learning. It's all beautiful. Well, I think that, Cause I was going to say a lot. I mean, there are people out there who are struggling and don't want to struggle. They don't want these addictions. Who wants an addiction? Really? Yeah, nobody's you know, nobody's proud of that. Nobody's proud. Not only are they not proud of it, it hurts. Yeah. It hurts. It, it, when you look around at um, people who aren't struggling with the addiction you're struggling with and it hurts. It's sad. There's this fear of loss. Yep. You're losing stuff yeah. and there's pain involved. And and so what, so, so I think, all right, what are these people going to do? I mean, cause they, I think for large, they get thrown in jail, they get caught with drugs, they get thrown in jail. And, and I think there's, I think it's starting to change. I think it's starting to change. And that one guy I talked to that I, that I mentioned who went to that Arizona, um, chain gang he said that in portugal they did this study um and they legalized everything every drug legalized it all and they took the money that they were using to enforce the drug laws because mm-hmm. their their drug laws were initially were patterned after ours here in the united states and mm-hmm. in the uk they legalized everything and then took that money and put it into job programs, put it into all these programs to help people. And I think it was at the time of that podcast, he mentioned that it had been 15 years out. And um, I think what he said was drug addiction. I think that's what he said. I'd have to, I have to go back and listen. It was down 50%. Wow. 50%. Even that's though everything huge. was opened up. It's opened up. But people aren't being shamed. They're not being um, made to feel less than, which is the uh, state of affairs, at least in the United States still, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but so there's these people out there and you're right. That's one reason I want to do this podcast that I'm doing. My podcast is to share what I'm going through. And I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not unique in this stuff. You know, and I know, I know there's people who have a lot more struggle going on than I have, but I also know just from talking to people, friends and family that they have no idea what to do about it. Some of them have no idea that what's even going on. It's just, 
they're just going about their day. It's like you hear a, it's like you got to check engine light on your car. You don't know what it is, but you know, there's something going on. Just check an engine light. The car seems to be running fine. You know, it's getting you from A to B. You don't hear any noises, but there's that check engine light and you just kind of put a piece of tape over it. You don't <laughs> see it anymore, you know? And that means something that would be a signal to you if you could just become attuned to yeah, that. Exactly. Stuff. And so the, yeah, the purpose of my podcast is I'm, I, I want to talk about this stuff. I want to get it out there and, and hopefully somebody, maybe somebody will hear it and think, you know what, maybe I can go talk to somebody, you know? And I just think it's time, especially for men, men don't talk about this stuff. We're talking about that book, no bad parts, you know, and a lot of people just aren't attuned to it. Yeah. I guess if there's one thing, if someone's listening to this and they are struggling with something or you want to share it with someone who is, what if, is there one thing that you would, you could do? I would say open your mouth and just talk, just, you're going to be looking for an agent, you know, just someone who can be on your side, understand the struggle that you're going with. Hopefully someone that you look up to and respect. Um, that may need to be a professional, you know, like, Absolutely. Uh, you know, we're both in therapy, b both of us, you talked about. Um, You're a therapist. I'm not. I, yeah, I am a therapist and I'm in therapy mm -hmm. and um, I have groups of men that I talk with and stuff. So I, uh, that's the, that's the first part is say it, open it, mm -hmm. talk to somebody. I, uh, over two years ago, well, it was over two, maybe two and a half years ago. I belong to this therapist of Las Vegas uh, Facebook group. Actually, I, I don't belong there anymore. They didn't like some of my views on some things, but anyway, <laughs> um, and I just said, Hey, I'm looking for an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous looking for an AA meeting where I'm, I might fit, you know, I, I don't want to go to some of the local meetings where my clients might be there. What, you know, what are my options? And this guy gave me a link to a zoom meeting. I started showing up and, just saying, um, I'm Brad and I'm an alcoholic. And they all said, hi, Brad. And there was the beginning of some connection. You know, I had a lot of that stuff. They talk about higher power and so forth. And I w was in a little bit of a crisis at the time, just a little f had funky feelings about my spiritual views. And um, the group became a higher power. Mm. You know, that's awesome. God was God group of drunks, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just people that I could, they, they were the, they were higher than me because they knew more than me and they were, they had more discipline. They became my higher power for a minute. And then I, you know, worked on that. That was part of my recovery too. Interesting in that Gabor Mate video about, he talks about recovery means that you've regained something. You know, if your truck goes in the ditch when they call the wrecker, that's a recovery. When they pull you out, when they get you back. Mm -hmm. So recovery means obtaining something that you once had. And maybe in many cases it's connection. And um, anyway, I just, I love your whole message here, man. And what you're, what you're trying nice. to share. I would um, talking is I think the best way to start. I, I think though, one thing that I find like sometimes it's scary to find somebody to talk to, you know, because and, and, and I, I think you can be, you need to find somebody who you can be safe talking to. Right. And it may take a few tries. You know, you may open your mouth to the wrong person and there may be, you know, it may not turn out how you want it to, but then go find somebody else, you know, but find somebody you trust. But one th an additional thing that I would recommend is start writing things down. Ooh, I like it. Like when you're struggling, I've had so many under, uh, like, when I'm having a hard time, like just this, this just happened a couple of weeks ago. I was having a really hard night. Like I, I was still at my office. I didn't want to go home. And I was in a lot of emotional pain related to my divorce, related to some other stuff. And so I just got my notebook and I just started writing, just writing, just all my feelings that were coming down. And I had this understanding of it. That, and this is kind of related to that no part, no bad parts book is that, um, and to that Gabor Mate video is that I, as I was writing, as I was writing, as I was writing, it just came into my mind. I understood that, you know, there are parts of me that as I was a little kid, in order for me to survive as a little kid through all the stress and trauma and uh, traumatic events that were going on, 
I had to, I, I used the term kill parts of myself off, but that's not what I did. I had to shut them down. I had to shut them down and kind of go on autopilot in a sense. I was just kind of a people pleaser. And so these other more dynamic outgoing parts of me, um, I kind of shut them down like these, the, the more of the authentic parts, cause I was still outgoing, but more of the authentic parts of me, I shut down because I was trying to be who everybody needed me to be. And doing that helped me survive childhood when I needed to be accepted by these caregivers of mine. And so I'm writing this down and all of a sudden I just realized that these parts of me, I kind of sacrificed to them in a way when I was a child so that I could get through childhood alive. Exiles. Yeah, exile, you know. And then in my mind, I just thought, I need to now go back and recover these parts of me. And I had such gratitude in my heart, you know, and, and you know, those of you who are listening might be thinking, what's going on here? But the, this book, No Bad, no bad Parts, it talks about these parts. And I said, I need, they, in a sense, sacrificed themselves when I was a child so that I could get through my childhood. And because if I was exerting authenticity, I, I don't know what would happen to me. I just kind of withdrew those parts. And so now, but as I was writing my journal, right, this, so this the reason I'm relating this is talking about the importance of writing stuff down mm -hmm. is I understood that, okay, they sacrificed for me. They kind of, they, and, and it wasn't in vain either because I made it through childhood. I'm 49, just turned 49 a couple weeks ago. Um, I made it, I'm alive and I'm in a position now to where I can go back and recover those parts of me that I had to exile. As you said, yeah, that's good. Yeah. I need, I could go recover them now and, and bring them back to me. And as I was writing just this emotion of gratitude just overwhelmed me and I just started crying and just, um, it was a beautiful experience, beautiful experience. And I had so much gratitude and that pain that I had earlier, it, it was still there, but it felt productive. It felt like, okay, it, the, I, should, I shouldn't say it was still there because it was it was relieved, but the things that were causing the pain were still there. But there was a sense of relief, sense of gratitude, a sense of overwhelming love for parts of me, me, not for myself necessarily, but I guess in a way it is. But so so the my point is that writing things down helps you understand things. I don't know how many times I've written in my journal things that I didn't understand before I wrote. I didn't understand before I wrote. In fact, some of my poetry, this is, I've realized this recently, you know, some of my poetry that I write, it's as if I, I you know, I, I think that, that traumatized child that to one degree or another, we all have, you know, we were all, we all experienced trauma as a child in one degree or, or another. None of us got out unscathed. That little child, that little boy, my little boy, he's, he is still part of me. Still he's, in there. Still in there. You know, what is it? Vander Kolk says the body keeps a score. That's right. He's still in there. But you know who else is also in there is who I call my higher self. Took that from Nietzsche. My higher man. Mm -hmm. The one who is, who is more connected. The one who is whole. I'm not fully connected with him yet, but he's there. And so I had this other feeling the other day because I, I write some of my poems and I go back and I read them like weeks, months later, years later. And there's answers to questions that I have in my poetry. And I just, it, it's almost as if this higher self, this higher man knows what I need. And he's telling me through my poetry. And that maybe sounds weird. I don't think it sounds weird at all, and man. He's telling me through my poetry. I mean, I, for when I'm ready, I'm writing it down. And when I'm ready, I go and I read and I think that is it. That's it. So well, well it, it's, it's interesting to me that both of what we're saying, 
you know, it, it really has to do with words and mm-hmm. it's just so powerful. If you can give your emotions, some language, your experiences, some language, if you get, obtain the language of the healing that you need, if you, the language is how you connected to this other part of you yeah. It's by, you know, it, like the study of your situation with words. Yeah. It's amazing to me. And it gets out of the echo chamber of your own head. Yeah. You know, swirling around up there in this abstract mess. Yeah. And and you can, those, those um, thinking errors that you have, you can, when you talk to somebody, you write them down, you can get them out of your head. You know, this, you know, we're talking about addiction. These, these, these antiquated theories or ideas of what addiction is, you know, that it's a failure, moral failure, talk to somebody who loves you and they can tell you that you're not a failure. So whatever it is, it's not because you're a failure. There's something else going on. It's just start there, you know, but, but to your point, I think, you know, I don't know that, I don't know. I kind of think that everybody should be in a group or a therapy. Everybody should be in therapy, but maybe not everybody's ready for that, but go find somebody who you feel safe with, who you can express your fears to safely. And then go from there and start right. If you don't have somebody yet, Start talking to yourself about them through writing them down. You know, I love that writing it down is yeah. a way to start working out the. You're working out the language of yeah. it. Yeah. It's helping you understand it. To understand it, to understand what the issue is, it's helping and it to be working in mental health. I, I'm not good with like parts of the brain, but it's it's helping the higher part of your mind, the more you know evolved, intelligent part of your mind where you're processing language that's different than the animal part that's mm-hmm. got you stuck in the addiction or whatever yeah. else. So the language kind of forces it into the higher man. Maybe Good, that's yeah. part of how you get there. I don't know about. I don't either, but I do know that when you think about it and you work on it and you try to figure out, like I, one poem I wrote, I spent weeks on one line and that line was this. Um, intent is not part of trauma's calculus. Mm-hmm. Meaning that you can be traumatized whether somebody's intending to do it or not. Mm-hmm. My mom dying. It was a poem about my mom's death. Mm-hmm. It said, "You." It was, I said in the poem, it was involuntary, I know, you're going away, but intent is not part of trauma's calculus. So I was not spared. And so but my working on that thought and idea and writing it down and, and, and trying different words, I understood that principle that I didn't understand before necessarily. And to understand that I can, not only can I be traumatized when other people don't intend to do it, I can also traumatize other people when I have no intent. When you're not trying to. Yes. So I need to be more aware with that, you know? So yeah, you're right. Writing words. Down, oh yeah. Yeah. It's probably a lot to do with it. It's just working those words out working those words out. Brilliant. It's amazing to me. Just, you know, whatever the healing is when you're doing your, when you're doing your therapy, you're having your men's group, you're talking. It's, it's, it's language. Language is helping you. Language is, is, you know, it, it, I don't know. I'm thinking things right now. I've never really understood before. So it's working in this very process. This is a seven 30 on a Saturday night right now. Mm -hmm. And it's just, there's, pretty cool energy flowing about because we're trying to put words to these complex things that are. Yeah. When being able to sit down and just works this stuff out with somebody. Yeah. That's, it's brilliant. That's how my experience, I'll say it this way. My experience is that's how it works. That's how it works. So, um, I appreciate your being on my podcast. You bet, dude. This we, is so much fun. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, so we talked about addiction. To, we actually, we talked about a few different things, but I just, you know, my takeaway is I just want, I just hope that because everybody has some form of an addiction, I think, you know, especially according to Gabor Mate's definition, everybody has something that they do to take away the pain, which, which uh, causes negative consequences and they, can't stop doing it regardless, whatever it is. I mean, whoever's listening to this, search your life. I'm sure you'll find something, maybe a smaller thing, maybe a bigger, I I don't know. But what I take away from that and like the rat park, for instance, 
it's not the end of the line. It's going to take work. I mean, I don't, I, it's important to understand that there's work involved. Sure. But um, it's not hopeless. Well, and there's, there's difficulty either direction. <laughs> so the difficulty of working it through, dealing with trauma, opening your mouth, you know, doing your healing, rescuing the parts of you that were lost mm-hmm. in, in the past and whatever, um, whatever that is, you, you, you can choose to do that. It's powerful. It is. And there's people out there to help and there's people out there that love you. And that's, um, that's important to remember, you know? So uh, I guess what I would recommend for all, even for myself too, is find people who you are safe to talk to these, talk about these things with find people. And if you feel like you need professional help, there's plenty out there. But one thing that I've learned after going to a few different therapists is you got to find a therapist that works with you, that you feel good about. Yeah. The fit is everything. They've got to be smarter than you. They got to know how to call you out. (laughs) They need to feel comfortable. It needs to be casual, but also, you know, something that stretches you and, 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 and that you, you know, they hear you. Yeah. Brad, thank you. Appreciate you it, bet, man. Dude. You bet, man. All right, until next time. You bet your brother. All right. All right, and thank you guys for listening.